you're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, a safe haven for mind warriors, hope fiends, and social conspirators. This is where we recharge, refuel, and recontextualize the human struggle as an unfolding of new potentials. We will not be dismayed. We have one another. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my friend and oft-times mentor, the executive director of the Institute for the Future, Marina Gorbis. Scale is anti-human to me. You know, we're operating at a certain scale as humans. What you lose when you scale is you lose these human nuances, this weirdness. Marina will be talking about what she believes is the only real solution to our social and economic challenges, mutuality. Thanks everyone for rising to the call to support Team Human on Patreon, which funds our ongoing project to assemble and publish the Rushkoff Archive of Conversations with Counterculture Legends. Last week's 1993 conversation with Terence McKenna generated a lot of positive feedback, and we're busy digitizing and reviewing cassettes recorded at raves, DMT sessions, protests, and more. It's all made possible by Patreon supporters like Dirk Teed, Stephen Pryor, Edgardo Noya, and Liam Tate. Thanks for being on Team Human. I've been doing a lot of magical thinking lately, and... No, it's not totally unhealthy, like in the, you know, DSM-5 categorization of the mental illness of magical thinking. I think it's just a combination of those two big harvest moons we just had, and one of them was a moon in Aries, which is where my moon is, and I got a bunch of email from people asking if I knew that my moon was in Aries, and that they just meant a whole lot of stuff, and they were doing like sigils and stuff for me, and then there was the Jewish High Holidays, which itself creates a kind of seasonal opening to more sacred possibilities, and all those folks coincidentally doing different forms of magic on my behalf. And then this fantastic conversation I had with my old friend, Grant Morrison, who's quite a mage. That was last week's episode, which I encourage you to listen to if you haven't. It put me in a kind of magical frame of mind, which is really a more comfortable place to be when things in the world seem to be going like they are. I don't mean like card tricks or pen and teller so much as like the magical worldview, more like, you know, Aleister Crowley or chaos magic and tarot cards or the I Ching and the power of Operation Mind in the 60s or the way we can materialize our intentions through thought and focus and language. And yeah, it's really easy to, to get confused and fall into a cult or the secret or something else. But these approaches do have some power. They really can make things happen. And and these days, it feels like this magical worldview and intention is happening at scale. That we're in a kind of a war right now, and we're calling it a culture war or a war of memes, but I think it's really more a, a war of reality creation, a battle over who gets to describe what's really going on here. 
And this is the realm in which Trump operates as well. It's part of what, in a weird way, it's part of what I admire about him, even if I don't like most of what he's wishing for. But it, it explains his approach to COVID, which is not to give the disease power over us, not to succumb to the fear of course, when that translates into not wearing masks, it's not good. You know, what he should do instead, you know, what the more skilled magician would do is recontextualize masks as power and not as fear. If we all wore masks and practiced social distancing for a month, the disease would be completely gone. That's actually true, right? It would be completely gone. So, but looking at masks instead as as power, as talismans, as an act of focus rather than some weakness, right? But magical thinking, it's also come to characterize this whole election cycle. In some ways, I feel like it, it, it's all that's left. You know, we, we're looking at the polls and all, and from the polls, it looks like there's a democratic victory. So now the the... The battle has become more about what people believe even a democratic victory would lead to. As I watch, the, the harder that the president argues that democracy is over, that voting can't work, that New York City is irreversibly failed, or that his thugs should stand by for civil war, the more to me it looks like he's trying to play this game of psych-out. If people don't believe they can oust him from office, then they won't be able to. They either won't vote, or they, they won't have the fortitude to assert the authority of the votes they've cast in the face of court battles or right-wing legislature simply overturning vote counts and picking their own winners. So that's the strategy. It's kind of sigil magic as propaganda. It becomes really clear once you understand the magical tradition that informs Trump's actions. As a child, Donald Trump went to the Marble Collegiate College in New York, where every Sunday he listened to the sermons of Norman Vincent Peale. That's the author of The Power of Positive Thinking. And Trump, as a kid, came to believe that the world is manifest through our thoughts. This was a whole school of thought, you know, Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science and Madame Blavatsky and, and Frank Baum and Vincent Peale, that thinking makes it so, right? We create our own realities and the realities of others with our thoughts and with our words. It's all based on the hypnosis of oneself and other people. So his success in manifesting chaos, you know, it gives some credence to his claim that America's electoral system has become just too chaotic to function. He said a fair election is not possible and that millions of votes would be cast illegally, right? In his words, it was as if he was casting a spell. He said, it's going to be rigged. It's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a fraud, the likes of which you've never seen. This is not going to end well. The ease with which he could disrupt the integrity of the, of the electoral process and that debate that he took part in, it seemed to prove his point. And then that the invocation of the Proud Boys, when he told them to stand back and stand by, that wasn't meant for the Proud Boys. It was meant for everyone who might fear them, right? He's putting everyone on notice. The elections will be contested by guys with guns in pickup trucks. Picture that. 
black voters. They'll be disrupted. They'll be intimidated. They'll be followed home. But Trump hasn't truly broken democracy. Not yet. He's broken the TV show that passes for government in a spectator democracy. But TV is not the real world. Reality TV is not reality. No amount of posing like a dictator on the White House terrace means there's really a dictator in the White House. It's a psych out. And the Biden campaign... Right now, it really amounts to a counter-sigil to Trump's magical workings. Biden's own incantation, what he and Kamala keep repeating on their own TV appearances, they keep saying, if we get the votes, it's all over. He will go. He will go. He cannot stay in power. It won't happen. It won't happen. He will go. You have the power. You control the destiny of this country. What's that if not an incantation convincing people you have to vote? It will work. It will work. What they're saying isn't true. So there's an election. Votes will happen and Biden will likely win by some margin. But then more importantly, there's our collective perception of what happened. Was it rigged by the Democrats, creating millions of fake ballots, uh, uh, doing harvesting, or by, by inviting Mexicans to vote somehow? And if we can't be convinced of that, does Trump have the power to stay in office anyway through sheer force of will, pushing state legislatures or the Supreme Court to declare him the winner anyway? And it's that perception of our world where we have as much impact on the election, on everything, as we do through voting itself. Call it the placebo effect, the, the psych-out, or magic, but it has real impact on the reality that unfolds personally, locally, collectively, and universally. The Team Human meme, it's itself meant to convey a different model for understanding ourselves and our relationship to one another. It is undeniably an assertion of will. I am stating we are in this together because I want people to believe we are in this together. Thinking doesn't make it so, but it sure helps make it possible. It's my honor and pleasure to introduce you to one of my great friends, a longtime member of Team Human, Marina Gorbis. She's executive director of the Institute for the Future, for the future, not of, because they're not just trying to predict the future, they're trying to make sure we have a future at all. They are dedicated, right, for our future. And in the midst of COVID, the elections, and after decades of looking at issues of economic equality, Marina has concluded that the best way through is to promote mutual aid, or what she has now dubbed mutuality. We talk all the time, we really are true friends, and Here's what it's like when we get together. There's this beautiful quote from Fred Rogers. Our world hangs like a magnificent jewel in the vastness of space. Every one of us is a part of that jewel, a facet of that jewel. And in the perspective of infinity, our differences are in infinitesimal. We're intimately related. 
That's mm. beautiful, Fred Isn't Rogers. It? Fred Rogers. He saw the fractal. Uh, the fractal. fractal truth. Part of a jewel. Jewel. Like yeah. So oh. sad. It's very. It's almost kabbalistic. You know yes. the. We're all part of the jewel. Part of the jewel. I love that. Yeah. And I love you first oh, and thank foremost. You. Thanks so much for, for <laughs> being on Team Human. I know. I know. That's part of it. I can feel I can it's feel the you. human. The human connection. It is. It is. And, you know, there's so... Uh, sometimes it feels like there's so few of us, especially in the kind of futurism, high-tech oh, world God. that are really always focused on, like you, Institute for the future. We're not predicting a future for people to, and I say we, because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an occasional fellow, uh, but we're not predicting the future for people to bet on it. We are looking at possible futures in order to get the one we want. And we're betting and hoping that there will be a future, you know, that the, ultimately being a future, <laughs> it is an amazing, you have to be a huge optimist, right? Because basically you're fighting for the future, that there is a future, I know. I hate to even consider that doubtful, but, you know, I don't know how much my kid believes that there's a future. She was I going know. to, you know, when I talked to her about her adulthood and she's like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what it is like to be a kid now, to be a teenager or 20. I have a, you know, still 20 some year old and like how they can see the world and so much, so much we have to part with, you know, the like the trees, the big basin that's burned down a lot of it here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's so much loss and so much grief. But I guess if you never had it and didn't know it exists, maybe you don't have that grief. But for people who still knew it, it's, it's huge. Yeah. I mean, for her, I think everything changed the morning she woke up and we told her that Trump had won. Because it just wrecked really everything she knew about the world. Bullies get suspension from school. They get sent to the principal's office, all this stuff. And I think that was, in, but in some ways it grew her up. And she was like, okay, I get it. This whole thing I've been sold doesn't, <laughs> it really isn't happening like that. Yeah. There's no justice. And it's like piece by piece being taken apart, particularly yeah. now, right? Well, that's in, you know, and, and in the piece you just did for uh, Medium about mutualism, which is a, a, an important, it's really an important new flag in the sand for, for you, for all of us. I, it marks something different, you know, because we've all been talking about various little ideas and, you know, UBI and UBA and this and that and the other. And just to say, wait a minute, you know, boom, mutualism. And I did something similar a, a couple of months ago when I was looking at, it, it became my, my excuse to do it, but looking at sort of black economic solutions and how, you know, the, the cooperativism in America and, and mutual aid has been practiced since the 1700s by blacks because they had to, because they were cut off from the economy. Then they would do better than the whites and then the rights would go riot and kill them. And so the it's same like, with immigrant communities, same thing. How do you survive when you're not part of the mainstream society? So, right. so people create these mutual institutions, banks. Yep, and they do better. But but you start the piece where we were just talking that we as Americans, I mean, I know you grew up in some Soviet times, but as Americans, we are looking at ourselves differently. You know, when we're trying to find toilet paper, I mean, all of a sudden it reminded you of your, I guess, your childhood in, in Russia. 
Yeah, it, it's such a weird space because all of a sudden Russia comes back to me. Like I feel like obviously not all there, but there's a lot of uh, remnants of Russia or pieces of Russia that I'm finding. You know, the other day I was thinking about this. About 10 years ago, I was in Moscow. This is such a weird episode. And I'm at this beautiful metro station and everybody's standing waiting. And this guy comes over and pushes this woman onto the train tracks, like just pushes her, right? You're so stunned, you're standing there, and then the train goes over and you think, okay, she's dead, right? So because the rails are so deep, the, the tracks are so deep, she actually managed to survive so that she was smart enough, and maybe it's a normal occasion in Russia that people are thrown and they just lay on the tracks, kind of uh, on a Karenina style or whatever, yeah. except she survived. And so I, I was just so astounded. And then she crawls out with the help of people. And you think there would be ambulances and fire trucks and somebody would be taking notes. No, this older woman who is an attendant comes over and she pats her on the back and gives her some tea and says, oh, come over, come over. And it was just, I came back and I was telling, uh, you know, my husband about this. And I was like, this would never happen in America, you know, because Russians, there's like no infrastructure. There's nothing you can depend on. You can't depend that the ambulance will come or police or, you know, militia or whatever. You just like crawl out. And it's such an amazing image of Russia, right? And here we are. And I feel like I'm in the same space somewhat here where during the fires, you couldn't be assured that the firemen would come. You know, we didn't have enough people f from jails fight who would be available to fight fires. So there's a, such a kind of sense of loss of security and assurance. Like one thing that I always thought of in America is that institutions work, that the fire department works, that police works, that, you know, these basic institutions that if you fall on the tracks somebody will come and rescue you and there'll be a report and there'll be an ambulance. I don't have this assurance anymore. It's such a loss of security, of psychological security in institutions. And you can take it from higher up the institution of the presidency, CDC, you can't get the, what do you know about their guidance? Do you trust their guidance? Do not. Who wrote this guidance? You know, you can't depend on the fire department. I'm not sure that the ambulance would come. I'm just, how did this happen? Right. That collapse of the, you know, this, in some ways, this civil service is the way you judge a nation. Civil I remember society, I think. Yeah. The infrastructure of civil society and this kind of infrastructure of security, of psychological and social security. I'm not talking even about our social safety net, which is basically very thin. And I think that is such a psychological shift for a lot of people where we were assured that things worked in a certain way. And it's like what I say in the article, it's like you feel like you were looking at the world through some crooked mirrors. And suddenly this mirror has been cracked and a very different reality comes through. And we're all adjusting to that reality. And people who've been traditionally oppressed will say, well, that's the reality we've been living in this whole time, buddy. You know, no one was there it's probably for my true. grandfather, you know, for my dad when he, you know, when his back went and he got his job kicked out of his job and no hospital would take him. And I mean, it, it is. But that's not good. Was no. that good? 
No, nobody wants that. I mean, I thought we were on the path of including more fixing that. (laughs) Right. Instead of fixing it, we made it reality for more people. Right. We brought everyone down to that level. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of things we could blame. You know, we could blame authoritarianism. We can blame neoliberalism and capitalism. In some ways, we can even blame friendship civics. You know, this whole idea that what we thought was kind of the, the Oprah style of if we're all just nice to each other. It's all going to work out. That's sort of, I fall into that sometimes. You know, it's a 1960s kumbaya, Marlo Thomas, you know, free to be you and me. Yes. It's like, no. Thousand points right. of light, remember It's not that? about being friendly. Yeah. I mean, Mitt Romney was a friendly guy, right? But he was yeah. also Bain Capital, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's not about that. And that's the thing about mutualism. And, you know, in conversations I've been having with people, which is, this is great, all these mutual aid and support, we've lived like that. And that's part of who we are as humans. But it doesn't devolve the responsibility of having good governance right. and good government. Right. It's not an excuse, right, to say, okay, just neighbors right. take care of each other. Yeah, figure <laughs> it out. You can, you know, you can fight each other's fires, just organize, you know, get some cannons here, do some things, but that is the danger of it. It's not about that. It's it's not about really not holding government and governance accountable. We still need that. Right. I mean, so you guys went, you looked at the fact, and these are this is this kind of language I use, and you always give me credit for it, which I like as compared to so many other people who never give me credit for anything, <laughs> whose names will be, we will we'll not point fingers um, <laughs> in this them. particular social dilemma moment that we're in. But do, you, know, you explain how the cultural immune system of our society is, has been weakened. You know, it's down, you know, when weakened progressively over the last 30, 40 years. And so in order to think about how do we restore it, you, you did a, a scenario planning, you know, and did you do, was this like the, the traditional two dimensional lines and things? No, Because no. No. you came up with four. Whenever I see people come up with four <laughs> scenarios, I think, yeah, two, by you know, twos, right? two, dim- yeah. two axes. There's like all these ways of doing scenarios. One is like you look at two uncertainties and you combine them and there's four. And that, you know, depending on what you're looking at, we like this alternative scenario methodology, which comes from Jim Dater, University of Hawaii, where he studied a lot of visions of the future and images of the future. And he said there's like four archetypal scenarios that people when they imagine the future there's four archetypes so growth is like things will continue as they've been right you're on the same path but you get more of it yeah, in the future yeah yeah you get more of it but <laughs> yeah. basically it's like kind of linear right uh the other one is constraint so something all of a sudden becomes constraint or like water you know is a shortage of water or a shortage of clean air or other kinds of constraints or cultural constraints like this becomes, you can't do this anymore. And then there's collapse, which is collapse of system or subsystem. The, the funny thing about collapse is when you talk to people about scenarios, a lot of people love collapse because it's like, oh my God, this is so complicated and it's so difficult and all of this, how do we figure it out? Let's right. just destroy it all and build right. it it's new. When people, fan- <laughs> when people are watching Walking Dead, Walking Dead is not a horror show to them. That's a positive fantasy, right? The cities are yeah, gone. Like, Let's just destroy it. A lot of what, people are saying that. It's it's really... You know, accelerationism, know. you know, let capitalism burn itself out and kill half the planet and then we'll rebuild. Burn it down. Yeah. Yeah. The thing about it is that, and I sympathize with that, but collapse is never evenly distributed, <laughs> right. right? Unfortunately, right? So the people you write about, yeah. 
they're not going to be affected. The people who build bunkers in New Zealand and they're already, right. you know, they're living in private spaces and they're not going to be affected. Who's going to bear the cost of collapse? It's going to be the same vulnerable communities and more of us will fall into that vulnerable population and we're going to bear the costs of it. So not a desirable yeah. scenario at all. And then there's transformation, which is always kind of the hardest to imagine because you have to imagine moving into something that doesn't yet exist or you bring something back but in a new form and this is a really a space for imagination it's like imagining it's less about predicting or thinking it's more about what do we want to happen really it's a space to say okay given all of this going on and and the three scenarios that we developed are all bleak whether it's growth continuation of things as, as they are or or collapse or constraint we we kind of stood back and say, but what do we want to happen? And wh- what are some of the signals of that that we're seeing that give us hope? That's kind of mutualism, which is moving to a different ideology where we recognize that we're all in interdependent relationships with each other and with the world, with nature, with the environment, you know, that we are part of this, all these other things. And, you know, mutualism, as you said, that's how we've survived for many, many <laughs> for right, centuries. And, or, or millennia. It may be what, you know, yeah. I mean, if you're not talking to Richard Dawkins, but talking to more more progressive, you know, evolutionary theorists, you know, like Glenn Isaacs and those kind of folks, they'll say, oh, no, it was food sharing and co- collaboration and cooperation that was our evolutionary heritage, really, as humans. We learned how to collaborate right. with each other. And frankly, okay, so you have a new set of ideas and it's hard to propagate those ideas, right? Because you're kind of fighting against existing beliefs and ideas and ideologies. But ideas are not enough. You know, a lot of us have great ideas. The point is that we've developed infrastructure, infrastructure of institutions, laws, regulations, that by their very essence are anti-mutualist, right? If you look at the corporate structures, it's not about benefiting everybody. It's about producing profits for the few. You know, if you look at our taxes, all of that, if you look at our capital structure, it's very hard to invest in mutualist type enterprises. You know that, that it's hard to get funding yeah. for co-ops, for steward-based companies I mean, that's and others. I always went all the way back to currency. You know, that was sort of my work was saying, well, what was the, what was the invention of central currency about? as well as the invention of the corporation. So it's like their corporation is the chartered monopoly, which was to monopolize as a way of doing business. And central currency was to prevent mutualism, was to require a central yeah. authority to lend the money, which then re- pushes everything toward your growth. Money wants to grow. It doesn't want to, to transform. Yeah, and that's an important thing. And I think like what we're experiencing now, like the beginnings of it can be traced to like 70s and then Reagan revolution and everything else. So we've been on this path for like 40, 50 years almost. The, the interesting thing though about corporations, right? Like if you think about 50s and 60s, I don't know if you've been reading Jerry Davis. He's a professor in Michigan. He he wrote this book, Demise of Public Corporation. So he's been actually tracing that we actually have a lot fewer public corporations today than we had 40 years ago, and their numbers are declining. And then one time, as you point, they were all public corporations, weren't they? Wasn't that the whole right. thing? 
they were like bridge right, and tunnel authority or to- exactly there they were only allowed to build socially beneficial things like canals and roads and all of these other beneficial things harvard university was the right. first public corporation but public in terms of it's available people can trade shares uh-huh. and own the shares and all of that so the number of those public corporations has actually really? been declining and pretty precipitously. Because they're going out of business and new ones aren't replacing them? Right. And the new ones like IPOs and startups, first of all, there are not as many to replace them. And the ones that are there, they're not creating as many jobs, right? And most of them, unlike the corporations we think of in the 50s and 60s, they don't buy resources, they rent them. You know, so you rent your server, you right. rent your, you know, you use contractors, you rent The everything. only thing they buy is other corporations, really, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. But basically what they've become, they've become almost like these financial tools to generate, to manage assets for investors and for the right. like Google owners. became Alphabet. They're like holding companies, really. That's Jack Welch's right. General Electric model was become a holding, get right. out of building washing machines and become a bank. Yeah, so you come like this financial tool, right? right? The corporation is basically financial mechanism more than anything else. And then there's three asset management companies that own most of these public corporations that are left. That, you know, there's three companies, Vanguard, BlackRock, and Street something. Anyway, they own 40% of all the stock in public corporations, right? So asset management companies holding major ownership in most public companies, you can see why they would be financial mechanism. And here's the thing that's actually, what Jerry is arguing is that we actually worked out a lot of things in terms of how to regulate public corporation, what to do with it, and how to not discriminate, and all of these things. And as they are disappearing, it's actually correlated with the income inequality and wealth inequality, because you know if you think about 50s and 60s, in America, GMs, Procter and Gamble, and others. Yeah, people could you could start as a janitor, and then progress to become an executive. You know, you you had that security. You owned shares in those companies. You know, there was a sense of security and belonging and all progression. All of that is gone. It's completely gone. It doesn't exist. So, I'm kind of rethinking my view of corporations because there were different kinds of corporations, right? And our whole social safety net and everything else we have was built on that 50s and 60s model of the public corporation where you could get training, you had stability, you had security. The differential in pay was relatively low, which is not the corporation No, something happened. I mean, the A&P, is this big grocery chain or was in the in the east since I was before I was alive A&P was always around there's an A&P in our town and I knew all the people that worked in it at the checkout and all and when A&P before they went out of business the venture firm or whoever it was that bought A&P they gave themselves bonuses they borrowed against the pension fund in order to seize more assets for themselves that they paid themselves in bonus. Then they went out of business and they didn't pay the contracted 
pension money or or severance pay or or cobra to their workers because they were bankrupt and they had taken all the money so how in the modern world, I mean, I sound so naive, but in the modern world, yeah. how can that happen? That the whole thing, the it was on paper. They have the paper that said this is what they're entitled to. Because the first people entitled anything to anything are the basically your investors. Proof of right? stake. It's, it's a proof who, of stake blockchain, yeah. right? <laughs> it's, it's, that's what it is. Yeah. You know, um, I, I'm sure you've been seeing this uh, Milton Friedman's, what is it, 50 years of publishing yeah. shareholder primacy, his famous paper, and a lot of people have been reflecting. And I've been thinking about it. It's like, maybe he's right. Maybe, you know, the whole purpose, social purpose of, of, corpor of the corporation is to deliver profits to his shareholders. Maybe he's right, but it's assumes that there is an other side, that somebody defines that territory within certain right. parameters, within allowable parameters. And so who sets those parameters? It's a government. But what he totally missed is that those have to be two separate entities. But when you have politicians that take money from corporations and from wealthy people, you basically have this situation where the jailers and the jailed are the same right. thing, right? So the jailers define the rules for the jailed. And I think that it's not about Milton Friedman. For all I know, he may be right in certain ways. And it just misses the whole point. What he missed is that when you generate this tremendous wealth and you allow that wealth to basically corrupt your political system and your governance system his theory falls apart right well who is it that said that when you when you live in a market economy you tend you tend to end up Carl in a market Polanyi. society yeah right? <laughs> so you start thinking about everything as a market good right so you know, did you see this crazy there's somebody put up with a website called civil which no. is a platform oh my gosh I don't know if it's for real because it's too surreal and dystopian. And it's, it's called Civil? C-I-V-V-L. Uh -huh. And it's basically a platform for foreclosures. So basically, like, like Uber, they will hire people to deliver your notices, to basically kick you out of your house, to uh, clean up your house, all of that. So is that crazy? And, and you just kind of think about, of course, yeah, what else? You can hire assassins. Why not? Why not have a platform that just hires assassins to go and kill somebody? You can do all kinds of things. And that's another thing in, in mutualism. It's like scale, right? Certain things should not be scaled. Certain things should not be efficient. Like making evictions efficient and scalable so you can do more of that, that's not a good thing. Right. And digital makes it so easy to scale stuff that we got to watch out what we what we apply it to. And that's actually one of the, um, in your, your sort of analysis of what we need to do or what are the obstacles to mutualism, scale was one of them. I mean, one of the things you talk about is how do we get from sort of being driven towards scale toward being driven to resilience? Yeah. Every time I hear this, and unfortunately you hear it everywhere, whether you're talking to foundations and you're applying for a grant or you're asking for money, the first thing, what do people ask? But will it scale? Right. Will mutualism scale? It's like, it doesn't scale, it distributes. It, yeah. It scale is anti-human to me. You know, right. we're operating at a certain scale as humans. What you lose when you scale is you lose these human nuances, this weirdness, this human 
you know, very local contextual thing. A friend of mine told me a long time ago, nuance doesn't scale. And I went like, that's good. You know, I want to operate in a world where I can treat you not like I treat some other person. Um, you know, I, I want to treat my employees as a, as a person, not to have some metric that I apply. And not everything scales, like think about it. It's like, it's scale, efficiency, and productivity. The three words that, you know, if somebody somebody tells them to you, just run. And I yeah. always like, you know, if you think about if Michelangelo produced just one masterpiece, would you think that he was efficient? Would, would you look at him as productive? Uh, you can't apply those metrics, right? To like the greatest of human achievement, the greatest of human creation. You can't judge them by those metrics. Like, does it scale? Is it efficient? Is it productive? You just can't. And so we're all kind of placed in these inhuman systems. It's systems that work for the mechanistic world where you can measure. I was just actually re-watching um, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Ah. What is it, like a, almost 100 years old, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, we're still in this world. Except now we're like knowledge workers and service workers in the same world. Right. And I think that's because we applied digital to industrialism rather than digital to these new distributed mutual models. It's because we are still addicted to that one size fits all model of industrialism that we kind of put it on digital steroids rather than transforming to you know, we did the growth. We we took the growth path rather than the transformational path. And what that you're are we growing? For. Are we growing human happiness? Are we growing satisfaction? No, we're are growing, we growing Jeff Bezos's bank account and <laughs> exactly. maybe nine other dudes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, the the reason I actually started thinking a lot about mutualism and kind of not just mutualism as an ideology, but an institutional arrangement, is because. I was reflecting on my book a lot and, you know, like everybody else, the book came out in 13 and it was envisioned this possibilities of these technologies, like everybody else being optimistic about it, that basically we can be creating and creating value in a very different way where we can, where we can aggregate contributions of many people. Wikipedia right. being the greatest example, open source, people sharing data and doing all these things. And then, you know, where from there where we are today and I did include some I said like this is the maybe utopian but this is what we could be building but there is kind of a dark side of it which you know if we don't do it the possibilities for digital feudalism and all these other things are th those are possibilities so now we're basically we're deeply in digital feudalism and not just digital feudalism feudalism in general if you look at how the experience of low-wage workers and how they work we're basically in, in feudalism now, not just digital. Digital just enables it. So what happened? Why is it that we had these amazing tools? We had these amazing possibilities. And I think the people who are building those technologies kind of have to, had those visions, maybe utopian visions. And that's kind of made me think that, you know, we had the tools, we had the ideas, but they fell into this infrastructure, institutional structures that basically took all of those and subverted them to basically feudalism. So, you know, if you have capital structure, if you have the business forms, 
that basically gives incentives to basically not create them as mutual forms, right, but create them as basically extractive enterprises, right? The kind of things that we're seeing in all the platforms today and everything else, it's pointless. You know, then you take these tools and they become basically co-opted and they become privatized. So you've got these possibilities. And that's why now I'm thinking, okay, it's not just about, it's not about the tools. It's not about just the ideas. It's actually building that infrastructure for mutualism. So, you know, how do we encourage a generation of companies or businesses that are either co-ops or they're steward-led or they're nonprofits or they're, you know, there's so many forms of doing business. And, you know, it's not about eliminating markets. It's just creating different set of incentives and a very different infrastructure. Right. I mean, one of the things I keep getting asked when I, you know, I'll talk to credit unions and communities about the circular economy and how to optimize for the velocity of money rather than extraction of capital and all in local business is they want proof. They want proof that it works or proof that there'll be wealth. And I feel like, and I've been looking hard, I don't see yet. How do we, and this would be an interesting project to work on, how do we come up with a good metric for measuring the velocity of money? How do I, how do we prove to a community that by doing mutual credit, they keep money? How do you follow a dollar in a community and show, oh, look, that circulated 10 times rather than just once and ending up in Walmart's bank account. You know, and, and it feels like right now we only understand money in terms of like, what are we storing on the hard drive rather than what's moving through RAM. And right. if we could show those numbers, then, I mean, those are the kind of things one gets a grant to do. Because it's like, okay, we've got, we're using math. We're <laughs> yeah, measurements is another, these kind of misplaced uh, measurements. I know, do we use measurements? Why, are there, do is... even, why do you even, even need to measure the velocity of money and the circulation of money? Why don't you just measure like people's level of, of health and well-being and psychological well-being rather than that? I mean, and we don't need a lot of proof. There's all this research about blue zones, you know, the zones where people live longer and happier lives. And those are not rich areas. There are areas in which people are highly socially connected. It's this islands in Greece and Okinawa. Well, they're like eating yogurt and olive oil yeah, and, and dancing not, at night. It's nothing fancy, <laughs> you know. It's like, it's basically having meaningful, connected lives that where you, you know, you see these people playing games in the park and having time and leisure. And But, but does it scale? <laughs> and it probably is very different, by the way, the way it looks in Greece than the way it looks in Japan. But right. the underlining thing is social connectedness and meaning in people's lives. I was just talking to somebody. We did this panel on mutualism at our event at the 10-year forecast. And I was reading Vanessa Roncourse. Um, she, she's been working with uh, uh, Navajo Nation. And I was reading an interview with her where she grew up there. And she said, I never felt poor until I went to school in Connecticut. Right. Like the whole notion of what, because I, I could run into my grandmother's house and an aunt's house and all of that. And I got all these, you know, I got a lot. I got a lot of riches. I got kisses. I got hugs yep. and all of that. So this is another bad thing about wealth. And, and that's why I think tremendous wealth, we need to start treating it as a disease condition. 
Yeah. Well, that's, that's right. You know, I, I wrote about this in Life, Inc. back in, whenever that, 2006, that when I was a little kid, we were raised in a middle, lower middle class neighborhood in Queens. And I we always used to tell the story how there was this, um, we lived on a little dead end block and there was a barbecue at the end of the block and it would get torched, you know, by Friday night or Saturday morning. It was up. And we would just go, mom would send me down there with a hot dog. Someone would make it. I don't know who it was. They would make your hot dog. You'd eat it. You were with every. My dad got a better job. We moved out to Scarsdale in Westchester. And we had our own barbecue and a nice big hedge. And all of a sudden, instead of barbecuing with the Joneses, it was like barbecuing against the Joneses. You know, this weird... <laughs> it was a bigger one, right? Right, it was a bigger one or better steak. We got porterhouse, yeah. but they got filet mignon. And it's like, oh my God. And I felt, but I understand, I felt poorer right. there, you know, because it was uh, on so many levels. One, they were all, we really didn't deserve to be in that neighborhood. So we were poorer than them, but my parents wanted us to go to good schools, you know, the to standard Jewish trope. They'll yeah, work all yeah. day and all night and to make you know, sure we go. I would say like, yeah, a lot of people would say, oh, that's just nostalgia that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I no. felt the same way in uh, growing up in the Soviet Union. Not that you would want to bring that here, but that wasn't an issue. You know, like everybody was poor. Everybody was poor and nobody was poor you know it was right it's just this is how people live so it's a very relative condition but when you have this kind of extreme levels of wealth it makes everybody look and feel miserable right because you always it's like this sense of insecurity is always there even if you are at a certain level you feel like oh that's not good enough well you know why it's not just that they have more stuff I remember feeling this really acutely the first time I went to San Francisco and I was driving near where you are, you know, like Redwood City and Palo Alto and seeing house after house after house and driving in this bluebird taxi pre-Uber, all these houses. And I remember thinking to myself, what did they do to deserve this? <laughs> so it's almost as if God has graced them that they are somehow, I don't want their pool, but I want to be as... You do? I don't want their pool. I want to be considered, <laughs> I want to be as loved by the planet, I think. I want to be... Oh, that's interesting. Do you know what I mean? It's almost as if I, because I still have a sense of, an innate sense of justice, I figure, oh, they have that because they're better people than I am. But in most cases, it's because they're just horrible people. <laughs> they, took all, they took all that extra money in space. Yeah, I don't think anybody deserves to make a billion dollars. Right. I, mean, I don't know what that level is, but I do know that if you have a billion dollars, either you inherited it, which is in itself is not a just thing to be doing right. or there is somebody you exploited along the way i'm sorry i just and unfortunately it creates you know underneath all of there's tons of research that shows that tremendous levels of inequality actually cause a lot of distrust they basically destroy our society they do destroy mutuality so i don't know how we get there to basically treat extreme wealth as a epidemic itself. Yeah. Well, I used to talk virus. about that. I used to talk about extreme wealth uh, to look at it as obesity. Yes. That they have so much money that they don't know where to put it. They've accumulated, but they can't circulate it. So it's like not being a muscular, strong person. It's like being an overeater, you know? Right. It is. Yes. It's a disease. It's a disease that we need to cure. Yeah. I mean, that's very, you know, it's very Gen X sensibility, you know, that you don't <laughs> want to show wealth that, oh, they sold out, they're too rich, you know, and there was something to us in the 80s anyway, that was so much more virtuous about, 
living with three people in an apartment and barely being able to make rent and you cook together and smoke together and, yeah. you know. I think we're back to that, right? Like, whether we yeah. like it or not, a lot of people moving back and can't afford to live. What is it? 75, 80% of, of 20 to 30-year-olds are back living with their parents now during Which COVID? Which is not a great thing. <laughs> sure. No, it's not. It's not. But in a way, if it engendered that, the kind of, culture that you see like walking around Rome at night with the old ladies you know oh, sitting on the true. chairs and the lovers kissing and the kids playing yeah it's but it's all, not yeah no I I you know I always people always say that experts say that like lower levels of mobility is an explanation for kind of low levels physical mobility people moving less is correlated with lower levels of economic mobility but you know most places in the world, people don't move away when they're 18. Even in Europe, people don't necessarily move away. They stay, they go to college where they live. It's not this crazy, you know, I have to go to this place far away and you're for, forever kind of losing some of the ties with your community, with your... So it's not necessarily a bad thing, kind of maintaining the sense of community and the sense of family and all of that. And that's, you know, partially this kind of level of mobility is why we have so many lonely older people, right? Because they're not um, a part of anything. Well, because the younger generation went, and in a very American way, I guess, aspired to something and left all everyone else behind and went yeah. west and started their company and did their startup. And, you know, I mean, what we're learning now, I mean, any Buddhist would tell you this from square one, aspiration is, its, is itself wanting you know, it's to, to want, W-O-N-T from Shakespeare. Yeah. It's like you lack. And it's right. like, what do you, I don't need to aspire to anything because I want to sustain, you know, the joy and connection and happiness. Well, and you have, if you have that level of sort of wealth, right, you basically outsource everything because if you don't have wealth, you have to dis, you have to depend on social relationships. So you, right. you can't hire a babysitter. You have to have grandparents or aunts or uncles or you, you could do it through that. But here, you know, if you have, take care of a, of a, older parent you do it yourself or all these other things but our lives are structured against all of that so our time has been colonized with work and we give it all kinds of titles of like oh this is meaningful work this is this and all of that but reality is we have no time for each other or for leisure or for reflection all of these things because it's been colonized. And then, you know, we work ourselves to death and then we outsource and we hire if we're lucky enough to have money yeah. to do all these human things. I know. And people, you know, conservatives often blame feminism for this, that, oh, women went back to work and now everyone's working and all that. And it's like, no, women should be allowed to go back to work, of course, but then men should be allowed to stay. Someone should be allowed to stay home. Why? How about why just did... work less? How about right. both? Why work did... less. <laughs> Right. Why did why did feminism mean now everyone has to have a job? <laughs> yeah, and as David Graeber, so the dearly departed, dearly brilliant departed, but so uh, you know he he put his finger on it. There are a lot of jobs that are bullshit jobs. That, mm. uh, yeah, and we're all in it because that's been the main way in which we distribute wealth in this society. Not wealth, but incomes. You know, a lot of people I talk to say, oh, it's about changing our narrative and the way we look at things and the way we understand it. But 
it seems in some ways much more practical than that. And, and, and the thing that was refreshing in your piece is you didn't end with, oh, we've got to go back to Joseph Campbell and the mythic return, and then we're going to instill ourselves with a better mindset. You're saying, no, no, no. Let's look at things like universal basic assets. Look at, at, at what's the, the, the privilege of starting a corporation or uh, a public banks or a tax code that doesn't punish wage earners and reward capital gains. That these are like, there's actual practical structural changes we can make. Yeah, because it's, it's not enough. As I said, there's lots of ideas and it's great to have ideas and there's great to have narratives, but ultimately it's about power to, to advance your ideas and to create the infrastructure that would make it real. That's where we need to go, is that we need to build that infrastructure so that incentives are structured differently. So you have maybe you put some limits on corporate pay, executive pay. Maybe you, you have to distribute shares to the public. Maybe, you know, Mariana Mazzucato's thesis about so much of our technology companies were actually built on top of public investments. All of these technologies were DARPA investments. They're government investments. That's our taxpayer money. And we get nothing from it in terms of wealth, right? In terms of incomes, we get nice social benefits if you're on Facebook or Instagram to connect with each other, but we have no economic benefits. So yeah, there are all kinds of ideas and, and things. It's the same as New Deal, as imperfect as the New Deal was, but it brought a whole different set of ideas about what's public, what's needed, how to get there. It was very, very practical. You know, and very wide. It yeah. went, it's the theater I was raised on was WPA Theater and Clifford Odets. And I mean, it went everywhere and, and you know, murals and art and bridges and jobs and education. Can you imagine today, like who would ever think that art is actually essential work? Like why are right. we not thinking that art is essential? And yet how we're surviving in this quarantine is all through crafts and art and doing something, right? We're rediscovering our ability to grow, to cook, to create, all of that. So, I mean, the ones who, who have time and are able to do that. So it's like, wh why not make art as an essential occupation? How do we actualize this? I mean, right now, I mean, a lot of us, we are doing great knowledge production. You are, I am, a lot of us are. And coming up with these ideas that the, the guys at Shareable and Neil and, and they're, they're, I mean, week after week after week putting out, look at this model, look at this model, look at that model. Astra Taylor writes a book of these models and those models. David Graeber. So like you say, the knowledge is now out there. The ideas, they're actionable good ideas are out there. So we do that and then you know, some new group of, you know, hum the, the Center for Humane Economics will put out a really silly white tech bro version of what we're doing that won't do anything. We're not going to get Biden or, or you know, or, or Beto to do these things necessarily, you know, whoever's in there. I mean, do we try to just model these things locally so they can sort of trickle up? You know, what's, what, what do you think's our best chance of making these things actionable. I mean, I know you're not a community organizer, but yeah. I, I feel like I'm tired of us agreeing with the others of us on these would work. What? <laughs> yeah, I, that's a question I posed to my panel. I said, you know, 
all of us have been in thousands of meetings on social impact investing and all of these great things with social entrepreneurs and blah, blah. And yet what has changed? We have greater levels of inequality than we've ever seen before. So obviously we're missing something. First of all, we all have a different role to play in this, right? The fact that we're talking and you're a public intellectual and we're writing, that's what we do. Yeah, that's important, right? But there is another level, which is you need to get these ideas to basically sources of power, right? Whether it's administration, government officials, you know, at each level, right? You need to convince other people, either they have money or power. Usually it's both, right? And then you start changing. You need to, so there's legislation that needs to happen. That's absolutely necessary. There is probably prototyping that needs to happen. So it's okay that we're all talking. It takes a long time. You know, a lot of people have to be talking about ideas before somebody takes it and changes things. But the other thing, back to Milton Friedman. So if you think about it, he publishes this article, right? In some pretty, I don't know, it wasn't like the greatest place where he published it. But then somebody actually totally took it and converted, like this is what it means for corporate compensation, right? And it was also published in some obscure finance magazine, right? And this idea that, oh, okay, if the primary purpose of business is shareholder profit, right? How do you get there? Oh, you change the compensation and you put it, uh, you give shares and all of these other things. And that is, has transformed. Then it got picked up, you know, because corporate executives move like a herd, foundations, philanthropy moves as a herd and all of that. So I think it's getting these ideas to the, through the power seats of power and then really it could be very simple it could be something like changing the compensation system it could be other things you know and so it's moving this through this network of power that's what we need to be doing slowly but surely hopefully <laughs> yes. hopefully. hopefully quicker i do think that as bad as it is you know we need to think about some radical solutions at this point because I don't see how we're going to come out of this otherwise. If there is a light at the end of the tunnel, it's this, that we need to become more radical. Thank you, Marina Gorbis. I am, I am certainly on, on Team Marina Gorbis, and I'm so glad that you're on Team Human. Go Team Human. <laughs> Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was the Executive Director of the Institute for the Future, Marina Gorbis. You can check out her new piece about mutuality on Medium. It's linked at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support this show, get access to our Discord channel, and bonus episodes. Our producer is Josh Chapdelin. Our editor is Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. (laughs) 